Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have another insightful episode for you this week. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Scott McKnight. Many of you probably know Scott. He's a brilliant scholar, speaker. He's professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Scott is a prolific writer, having authored over 50 books and blogging regularly for many, many years on his blog, Jesus Creed. On this week's episode, Scott and I discuss a topic that has met with some controversy as we look at his latest book, Adam and the Genome. Scott shares with us how science and scripture can beautifully coexist. He explores why we must be careful how we approach scripture in light of scientific discoveries and how we approach science in light of scripture. Scott really helps us as ministry leaders better understand how we can engage in conversations about science and scripture, and I believe you'll be challenged and encouraged by what he shares with us. So I invite you to join me in my conversation with Scott McKnight. Scott, we just want to welcome you today to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for being with us. Well, Jason, thanks for having me on. It's a privilege and an honor to be with you folks. Your most recent book, Scott, is entitled Adam and the Genome, which you co-authored with Dennis Venema. And this book really focuses on how we read and understand Scripture in light of new discoveries in science, and specifically uh, in regard to genetic science. So, Scott, can you begin by sharing with us how you got involved in this project and why you feel it is an important discussion for the church to be having today? Yes, it's very good. Um, a, a very good topic, and uh, I, I think an answer to your question could be uh, my life story. So I'm going to try to just uh, dip in and, and out on a couple issues. The first is that I grew up in a world that was, I think, young earth creation, Genesis flood. Uh, science was uh, largely run by atheists, materialists, empiricists, and non-believers. I had a Christian chemistry professor who was a wonderful man in high school, but I always was a little nervous of him because he wasn't in our denomination. But when I was in college, I took a course on biology and I began to read a little bit and started to open up my mind a bit to more on science. But it was while I was in seminary that I read a book that dealt with macroevolution and microevolution and it was at that point in my life that I pretty much surrendered to the idea that evolution uh, at some level is how God decided to create the world or to bring the world into its existence and humans as well. I wasn't thinking very carefully. I wasn't doing science. I wasn't a scientist. But it was when I was teaching college students at North Park University, where I taught for 17 years, I'm now at Northern Seminary, but I had so many honors students who were also science students or who loved science, who came to me with very serious questions about the Bible. And to the point where I realized uh, that number one, they needed an answer bigger than I was giving, and second, I didn't have answers to give them because I hadn't studied enough. So I began to study more about evolution and science, and this provoked me to study more about Genesis 1 through 3 
in the context of the ancient Near East. And when John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, came out, it was like a lightning bolt struck, and everything became clear for me that I had to start studying this ancient Near Eastern stuff far more intensively. So then I encountered, because of my blog, uh, because of so many things where our science conversations were coming up, I have a colleague who writes on the blog named RJS, we don't give her real name, uh, who is a scientist, and she constantly talks about science and faith, and I've listened to her and learned from her and grown so much that I was invited to participate in BioLogos, and that is where I met Dennis Venema, my co-author, and at that point I had read an article of his on genome theory, and then Dennis, uh, because he knew I appreciated his work, asked me to participate with him in this project. We were given a BioLogos Templeton Foundation grant, and we produced this book, Adam and the Genome. So that's sort of how I got involved. But I, I want to say this, that the primary reason I got involved was pastoral. I was convinced that my college students needed a better answer, that I needed to study the ancient Near Eastern texts better, and I knew as a fact that the primary reason young Christians, evangelical types, leave the Christian faith is because of what they're taught about science through the Bible and what they learn in science classes, and they become convinced that the Bible is untrustworthy because they've been taught what I would call a false view of concordism. Now, that's a long answer, Jason. I'm sorry it took so long, but... No, no, that's solid. Now, I, I will say whenever you mentioned um, in that answer that, that you were coming to this point where you, you know, were understanding and, and beginning to believe in this idea of, of evolution, more likely there are people that are listening to this podcast who maybe they, they stopped the podcast immediately there. Um, hopefully they hung in to hear a little more. Um, but because often there's a knee-jerk reaction whenever someone is talking about evolution that people automatically tend to think that means you do not believe that God is the creator. That's can, right. can you kind of touch yeah. on that a little bit? Evolution uh, is of different stripes. I mean, there's, a, let's say, a radical, naturalistic, empirical evolution where there is no God, that this is all just sort of uh, an evolutionary process that we happen to be involved in, and we've got these crazy ideas in our head about God, but it's not truly uh, mapping reality. That's how some people understand evolution. And it's unfortunate because many evolutionists, many people who accept evolution as a scientific hypothesis of the evidence in the empirical world, simultaneously believe in God. So there has developed sort of a radical naturalistic evolution, but there is a Christian form of evolution, and it's often called theistic evolution. That is that God guided the evolutionary process. And what has happened among many uh, Christians who are serious about their theology and science, they now have a new category that is being used that we call that is uh, called evolutionary creationism. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the idea is that they fundamentally believe that God is a creator, and that God, the modifier, the the dominant word is creation, creationism. And the modifier is evolutionary. Rather than evolution being the primary category, 
The idea is that God created, and he created by the process of evolution, so that human beings, you and I, are actually made in the image of God because God was at work in the evolutionary creation process to make us special in God's image. Now, this um, struggle has been going on for a, a very long time, the struggle between kind of science and scripture, science and the church. I mean, we, we look back, Galileo, uh, Copernicus. I mean, it's just, it's just this kind of constant tug and pull. Um, why is there such a struggle between science and scripture? Well, there's two reasons, and it comes from both sides. Sometimes scientists, I would say that I should say that more accurately, often scientists overreach. And they here's what happens. They explain everything in empirical ways and then conclude, so therefore there's no God. Well, if you decide at the beginning that the only thing you're going to count as evidence is empirical things that you can observe in a laboratory, then you've excluded God from your definition at the beginning. So sometimes scientists overreach. I, th I think this is the case with people like Daniel Dennett. And these people just uh, are think that science is everything. Then, on the other hand, there are Christians who have interpreted the Bible thinking that the Bible is scientific, and therefore when they look at science, they say, well, the science is wrong because it's against my scientific interpretation of the Bible. So I would say the problem is on both sides overreaching their claims, and that is to think that Genesis 1 is a map of, let's just say, scientific reality, when, when we read it in the light of the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, we would say that it is a piece of polemics against Babylonian and other types of ancient creation myths in which God has revealed to Moses, whoever you think the author of, of Genesis is, I'm all for Moses here, but once you admit uh, that this is a text that is responding to ancient Near Eastern myths, you don't look at it so much scientifically, you look at it as a piece of profound theology countering what is going on in the world, and this gives us a map of how to counter scientific claims in our world today. That's one of the things that I like the most, is that, is that what we learn in the Bible is that current views on science have limitations, and the Bible says there's far more involved in this than what many people think. Yeah, that, that's good. Now, um, that kind of leads us into, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the title character of this new book, right? Adam. Um, yeah. So oftentimes, you know, people go to Genesis 1 through 3, you know, and talking about Adam. But one of the points that I have heard in regard to Adam as a singular biological individual is that both Jesus and Paul refer directly to Adam in the New Testament. So how do we kind of walk through that? Not only the Genesis 1 through 3, but whenever we get to the New Testament, we have Jesus and Paul speaking of Adam. Um, how, how do we sort through that? Well, uh, you've jumped way ahead here for me. Uh, <laughs> all of a sudden we're talking this. All right, here's what I would say. This is important to understand. Um, I do not want to reinterpret the Bible in light of science. And no self-respecting biblical scholar would want to say, well, now we've got to change our view of the Bible on the basis of what science is saying. That's not what, what, we, what we should be doing. 
What we should be doing, I think, as Christians is to listen to one another. And I will say this, that it was in my listening to my science students, it was in my listening to scientific evidence as presented by RGS often on my blog, but in particular, it was in listening to Dennis Venema's examination of DNA and genome theory that made me say to myself, I have to study the Bible again. And Jason, here is the biggest problem that I face as a professor who taught science students. If we're not careful with the way we talk about the relationship of the Bible to science, we become the ones who make the Bible wrong. And that is when we develop what is called concordist theories, and that is that if we study Genesis 1 carefully, we'll show that it proves science right, or it'll show uh, that the Bible is actually scientific. I think when we start finding scientific theories in the Old Testament, we are dancing on very thin ice and playing with fire underneath it or on our, in our hands, and it's, we're going to end up falling. Uh, recently, a very well-known conservative evangelical publisher wrote me a letter and said to me, we must abandon all concordist theories. And what he meant by that is we've got to quit trying to show that the Bible is scientific and let the Bible say what it says in its world. And one of the things it talks about is Adam. And Jason, I, I want to I frame uh, your question in a slightly different way. And it's not because I want to dodge your question, but because I think that the question that you ask about Adam, according to Jesus and Paul, comes from an angle that assumes a bunch of things that I am suspicious uh, that we shouldn't be assuming. And here it is. Mm -hmm. when, we, when we say, do, we, do I believe in a historical Adam? And did Jesus and Paul believe in a historical Adam? We have an entire, uh, this is the, uh, a tip of, of ice above the water, and there's an iceberg below it. And this is what I think people are asking when they ask if someone believes in a historical Adam or if Jesus or Paul did. And I know what uh, people are saying when they ask those questions, and I appreciate their questions. I know their sensitivity because I've lived with that, and I've lived with it in the eyes of my students and in the tears of my students over the years. So here's what I think we, we mean. Some people think that this means two actual persons named Adam and Eve, and I want you to, I want to emphasize that we often ask about Adam and we forget Eve. Paul did not forget Eve all the time. There were two actual persons. So let's just say that this is a, an actual Adam and Eve. And then a second element is that there is a biological relationship. This is very important. A biological relationship between Adam and Eve and all human beings that currently exist in the world. And furthermore, now that we know more science, that means that there is a genetic Adam and Eve, and that is that the DNA in Adam and Eve has been passed on to all human beings. So we have the DNA of Adam and Eve. And then we move to the next level. I call it the fallen Adam and Eve, and that those two actual human beings who have a biological and genetic relationship to you and me sinned, died, and brought death into the world and in the process, they passed on their sinful natures to us through the genetic process at some level. 
That's pretty common. Now, some people think it's simply a representative view, and I actually think that the representative view, uh, characterized by Reformed theology, has a little bit of a more wiggle room with, with respect to scientific evidence. And then here's the big issue. If we don't believe that they passed on this sin nature to all human beings, somehow, but mostly most people that I've talked to believe it's in a genetic or in some kind of biological procreative way, then all humans are not sinners, and therefore the whole gospel of salvation is in jeopardy because then we're not claiming that every human being by birth is sinful. That's what I think is invested in the question, did Adam, did Jesus believe in Adam, and did Paul believe in Adam? Now, here's what I want to say. This is a big conclusion for me, and I go through this in the book pretty extensively, because in the book I examine Adam and Eve in Genesis, a uh, long chapter, then I examine Adam and Eve in the Jewish world with the Jewish texts, apocalyptic wisdom texts, uh, so, that, so that we have on the table how different people in the Jewish world thought about Adam and Eve, and the evidence is that they thought very differently about Adam and Eve, and that Adam and Eve were wax figures who could be molded to their own beliefs. And then I have a chapter on Paul, and I focus on Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. All right, this is my, uh, this is my concern and my conclusion, that that process of believing of an actual biological genetic fallen sin nature passing on theory of Adam was not held by anybody in the Jewish world or in the Bible. So what is vested in the question is actually later Christian theology that begins with Augustine probably, and maybe before him, and develops into a very strong and I think wonderful piece of theology I like the original sin-type original sin type view, but I just don't believe that we can find that theory of Adam, historical Adam and Eve, taught in the Bible. I am virtually certain it's not taught in Judaism, so therefore we should not assume that that's what Jesus or the Apostle Paul believed when they talk about Adam. Very well. So can you unpack a little bit for us then, and kind of back up a little bit and help us understand how did the Jews understand Adam then? Since Genesis arose from, obviously, a Jewish context, how did they view Adam? All right, the, uh, now, if we talk about Genesis, that's a little different than talking about the Jewish world. But let's just say in Genesis, the primary idea is that Adam and Eve are both made in the image of God, when in the Babylonian and ancient Near Eastern Egyptian worlds, Humans, by and large, were not—ordinary people were not made in the image of God. Only kings were, and dominantly, it was only males. So therefore, there's a radical statement that all human beings are made in the image of God, and they're given a responsibility to govern this world, which John Walton says is made in the image of a temple, that we are called in this world to represent God and to bring people to worship God. In the Jewish world, the fundamental category— comes out of Genesis, but it is this, that Adam and Eve are moral exemplars. John, John Walton calls them archetypal Adam and Eve, and I really like his category, and that is that they are exemplars of, human, of the human beings who are 
put in a situation where they are called to respond favorably, positively, trustingly, and obediently to God, and they fail. So the fundamental category in Judaism is that Adam and Eve failed to obey God. They are human beings who failed and therefore experienced death and exile and judgment. That's the fundamental category of Adam and Eve, which is precisely, precisely what the Apostle Paul says about Adam and Eve. Well, not Eve. About Adam, well, when he mentions Eve in 1 Timothy 2, it's, it's the same category, what, which is what? Adam was the person who was given the opportunity to obey. He disobeyed. Adam, therefore, suffered condemnation. Adam, therefore, brought death into the world. That is how Jews understood Adam. They were a moral Adam and Eve, and they were given uh, the responsibility, the commandment to obey God, and they chose not to, and therefore they wreaked havoc in the world as a result of their disobedience. That is the Jewish view of Adam, and that is Paul's view of Adam in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Very well. Now, as we look at that and as, as we talk through that, Let's dip back into a bit of the science then, um, because the way that the book Adam and the Genome is presented, the first half, um, Dennis really spells out the science behind it. The second half, you dig into what we've just been discussing, kind of the, the scripture understanding through that. Now, when we dip back into the science, how does what's going on with the Genome Project and, and discoveries in genetic science um, contribute to what you just explained in regard to the Jewish understanding of, of Adam and how Paul understood Adam. Yes, let, let me put the big theory here first, okay. and it's this. I don't think that what Dennis Venema says in the first half of the book has anything to do with what I say in the second half of the book. In the, and what I mean is this, is that he does the science, I do the Bible, and I try to show indirectly that the Bible has nothing to do with science. So I would call our view, uh, I think you would call it a non-concordist view. And that is, let the Bible be what it is. It's theology. Mm -hmm. It's talking about the human condition. It reveals true things about the human condition. But the Bible does not ant anticipate later science. So therefore, uh, that's the big idea. Now, here's, here's the important idea. Dennis talks about uh, creationary evolutionism or evolutionary creationism, um, and he shows that it's not the same thing as intelligent design, and I don't like to get into that conversation because I don't know that field, and I, I turn that over to experts just as I turn over teeth to my dentist. And that, <laughs> and that is this. Dennis's conclusion on the light of genome theory, and Jason, this cannot be anything but deeply respected, is that the DNA that is currently characteristic of human beings in the world today could not have come from less than 10,000 individuals. Which is to say, there never were two solitary human beings on Earth with no genetic connection to animals prior to them in a process. That is contrary to everything we have in science, that we have, the, that our DNA 
I think the I think the percentage is something like it's about 95% of our DNA is found in chimpanzees or or, or our chimpanzee DNA is 95% found in humans, orangutans, gorillas. These things all have genetic connections. And Dennis has said this over and over and over, that if we never heard of Darwin, if we never had heard of, of um, the descent of the species, etc., we would still have to believe in some sort of uh, evolutionary creationism simply on the basis of the genome evidence that there is such a genetic code here demonstrating genetic connection over time and speciation that we would have to we would be forced to believe in some form of evolution so here's the big point i want to say i respect people who read genesis chapter 1 and 2 and say see there were only two human beings in the world when it was created and therefore, there were two, only two people on earth, uh, and everybody descended from them. I understand why they say that. But if they want to say that, they are forcing people to make a choice between science and the Bible. And they could make two decisions. Science is wrong, and the Bible is prescient when it comes to or prescient when it comes to scientific evidence and that all the scientists today are wrong and that all this genome theory and genetic evidence is mistaken and people are seriously deluded, or they can conclude that the Bible is wrong and the scientific evidence is right and the Bible's wrong. My contention is we should never force people into that decision, is that genome theory uh, instead says to, to me, just as it said to Augustine, maybe my interpretation of the Bible, of thinking that there were only two human beings, is mistaken and that the Bible is talking about something else. Namely, that this is a model that human beings are set before God in this world and they have to obey God and if they don't, they will bring death in the world. That's what I think Genesis is talking about. It explains death in the world as the result of sinfulness. And uh, I think that we should be very careful, and I've always, I've become convinced of this after teaching science students who were in tears about their faith as a result of learning about science. I believe that we should learn to read the Bible in ways that don't contradict science, not because science is right, but because we need to be careful about thinking the Bible is scientific. Yes, that's a, a very important distinction and something that we really need to keep in mind. Our audience here is made up of pastors and ministry leaders, many of whom are likely finding themselves in conversations around the topics we've been discussing. So, Scott, what guidance would you share with them as they engage in these discussions? Well, the first thing I, I mean, I think, Jason, you've asked a monster question here. Uh, the first thing I would say is that I would encourage pastors to respect scientists, not not diminish scientists as atheists. My experience with scientists is that they're some of the most honest people in the world, and they operate with, with uh, honest principles because to get something published in science, you have to put everything on the table and it has to be analyzed by others. 
And that I find, and the other side that I have found uh, that I would encourage pastors to do is to recognize that every scientist in the world would love to prove evolution wrong because they would become instantaneously famous. <laughs> they would become the new non-Darwin. And I've, I've seen this with, they're always trying to find something new, but they have to do it so rigorously that the results are based in empirical studies. So that would be the second thing. Uh, the third thing is I would encourage people uh, to read the Bible in the context of the ancient Near East and the Jewish world. The biggest mistakes we make is when we read the text out of a context, and it's a common statement that a text without outside of its context becomes a pretext, and that's exactly right. St. Augustine uh, once said, that the one thing we should avoid doing is avoiding scientific conclusions and that when we learn something about science, we need then to go back and see if our interpretation of Scripture is right. So he learned from science. I think that's what happened to me. I didn't want the Bible to conform to science. Science said something to me that said, hey, I've made the Bible wrong with my interpretation. I need to be humble enough to listen to what God is saying in Scripture in its context, and maybe my interpretation has been wrong. And that's I think that's why I'm grateful for people like John Walton and, and Tremper Longman and Peter Enns uh, for the work that they've done, J. Richard Middleton, for the work that they've done on the ancient Near East and the Bible in its context that all of a sudden shows us the theological message that is coming through the text and that we should be very careful about imposing our scientific theories on the Bible. So um, my principle has been that we need to become conversant with scientific conclusions. We need to listen to scientists. We need to respect what scientists are talking about. And we need to be in dialogue with scientists, not to prove them wrong and not so they can prove us wrong, but so that we can learn from one another and see how God has created this world in the way he's made it. And I don't think, I don't think that this, uh, this non-concordist view is a way of avoiding science. I think it is a way of appreciating the glory of science. Not too, A couple years ago, Chris and I—actually, it was last year, but it was, it was a, f a few years before that—that that Chris and I were in Northern Ireland— and we were um, at Giant's Causeway. And I don't know if you've ever been there, Jason, mm -mm. but many have. And you see on the north, north shore of Ireland these massive rocks. To me, these massive rocks don't prove the Bible wrong. They prove instead the immensity of God, God in time that created. You know, the universe is 13.5 billion years old. And God is so creative and so adventuresome and so full of joy that for 13.5 billion years, this world has been skipping and hopping and clapping and laughing and joyously moving forward to where God could show that the entire meaning, the entire origin, and the entire direction of all creation is his son, Jesus Christ. And so I see the immensity of creation as an opportunity to praise the, uh, the depth and immensity of God. That's awesome. It's beautiful, brother. Scott, I, I want to say I really appreciate not only your sincerity, 
but also your generosity, not only in, in this discussion, but also throughout the, the book, this idea of, of respect is very important to you, and, and you understand that, that this is a topic that um, there are multiple views on, you know, within the church. And so, so I, I just appreciate the way that you have entered into this conversation in, in such a way that respect is a very important piece of that. So I just, I just wanted to say that as, as we're kind of closing down today's conversation. I appreciate that, brother. Let me let me say it another yeah. way too, and that is this: that pastors, as a general rule, leaders in the church should never say to a scientist, "You're wrong on the basis of the Bible." I think I think that is an invitation for them to reject the Bible, and for us to think that our Bible is actually scientific and is superior to their laboratory empirical science, which they know is pretty accurate. Uh, you know, they always know that there are theories, and a theory is hypotheses put together that hasn't been disproven, that we should be very careful as theologians to say that science is wrong. And the other side is, I tell my science friends, don't step on my turf and tell me that God isn't the creator, because as a scientist, you can't talk about that. Mm. Your science will not lead you there. So we have a mutual discussion where we can converse with one another and respect the limits of one another's disciplines. That's that's so good. I appreciate that. Now, Scott, if if people want to learn more, um, I know they can pick up the book again. Adam and the Genome is is the title, and I think you guys have a web website, AdamandTheGenome.com. They can go and, and learn more. But how else? Uh, what are some other ways they could connect with you, Scott? Well, if they go to my blog, Jesus Creed, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, RJS blogs most often on science and faith discussions. And I'm a big fan of Dennis Venema's writings at the BioLogos website. And I think Dennis does a great job communicating difficult scientific topics in prose that can be understood. And he's really worked hard at this. And the reason is, is because pastorally, he has a relationship with Christian students who are troubled by scientific evidence. So he's learned to talk clearly. He's learned to give potent analogies, and he's learned to be pastoral about it rather than just jam it down people's throats and say, forget your religion. He doesn't do this at all. So I would say those are the places that I would go to follow up. That's excellent. And, and that sounds like a great resource, especially for our, our church leaders and our pastors as they're having conversations with people. Um, sounds like Dennis, um, his, his work and his articles there will be most helpful. So we'll have all of those links in our show notes so that our listeners can find those easily. Um, but I just want to say once again from uh, the team here at Church Leaders, Scott, we really appreciate you being with us today and all the, the work you're doing for the kingdom. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you, and it's an honor to be with you. And I I hope your, um, your listeners will um, follow up some of their scientific questions and be pastorally sensitive to their science students. Awesome. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts, so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. 
And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.